Hey there, folks. The market anticipation for a 2024 rate cut is reaching fever pitch, but will business end up facing the impossible inflation choice? I'm Aaron Young. Let's find out. Now, streaming right around the world, this is Ticker Today. Hello, great to be with you wherever you are joining us from. Also on Ticker Today, why CEOs say they're struggling to sleep over a looming threat. But first... The Federal Reserve's unexpected policy shift has sent ripples through the financial world over previous weeks, prompting Wall Street to reevaluate its outlook for interest rates in 2024. Let's bring in Kyle Rodder now from Capital.com. Kyle, great to see you. Talk to us about what prompted the Federal Reserve's, I suppose, surprise pivot in interest rate policy. Yeah, well, I suppose it's been unfolding over the last three or four weeks, and it's come because of some softer data out of the United States, and then some sort of hints in commentary, and even the last Fed decision that perhaps we've reached a peak in the interest rate cycle, and the markets were pretty quick to price in rate cuts next year. So we had the Fed decision or the FOMC decision last week, and everyone was pretty much on tenterhooks waiting to see what the Fed would do. The expectation was that they'd probably try and push back on things just because markets were getting so excited about the prospect of rate cuts, despite the fact inflation remains relatively elevated, a lot lower, but relatively elevated uh, at the moment. Um, Lo and behold, we basically had the Fed's own projections suggesting that they'll be in the position to lower rates next year. Jay Powell even suggested that uh, the discussion about when to lower rates was had. And effectively, since then, we've been off to the races. Six rate cuts being priced in next year. We have the NASDAQ hitting record highs, the Dow hitting record highs, the S&P 500 is not far away. So everyone's getting very, very excitement, uh, excited that not only have we seen the peak in interest rates, but they could start to come down next year as well, at least in the United States. And talk to us about how analysts or investors, I guess, are adjusting their predictions, their forecast for 2024 as a result. Well, I mean, they're sort of falling over themselves to sort of upgrade their outlook for uh, equities and and perhaps the prospects uh, for, for growth next year too. But it raises the question, of course, I mean, rate cuts normally come because of a significant slowdown in economic activity. Is everyone getting a little too ahead of themselves, sort of anticipating what is um, called, I suppose, in technical jargon as a, as a soft landing where inflation can come down without engineering a recession in the process? So, again, we've seen equities at, at record highs. We've got, you know, gold prices rocketing higher as well. There's this uh, dynamic emerging that in the commentary of people are calling an everything rally because bonds, stocks, everything seems to be going up. Um, a lot of almost euphoria in the market now because of this, uh, but you could argue that it also, um, you know, uh, raises more questions than it does provide answers. Again, uh, because it does typically mean these sorts of rate cuts do typically mean, I should say, um, you know, a fairly material slowdown in economic activity. The whole thing has been pretty much manufactured when you think about it. Obviously, the stimulus that was put in to help companies and individuals survive through the COVID pandemic, that obviously has now led to um, huge concerns about inflation. No doubt that also wasn't helped by the war in Ukraine as well for those oil prices. But because it was somewhat of a uh, conflated, uh, I guess, a bit of a downturn, which was created on purpose, is that why sentiment remains so strong? It's almost as if investors are dying for things to get better. Yeah, yeah, they're certainly dying for things to get better. And again, you know, there, there was that um, fear, I suppose, that because there was so much pump priming that went through the economy during the pandemic and that perhaps, you know, we came out the other side of the pandemic um, in, in a better uh, state than, than, than we thought largely by virtue of very, very low interest rates and huge fiscal spending, that we'd have to eventually take our medicine and, and deal with a fairly rough uh, and hard landing, as they call it, um, in, in, in economies to kind of almost correct for that you know time of you know huge stimulus. This is why we're seeing such euphoria, though, because it would seem that at least on the surface, investors are anticipating that you know effectively 
um, markets can have their cake and eat it too, that uh, inflation can, can come down, but it can come down without having to uh, deal with this you know, really, really painful recession. So again, this is why we're seeing markets off to the races. They could be wrong. Investors have been wrong before, and I'm sure they will be wrong wrong again, uh, potentially about this. Uh, but for now, you know, 2024 has been treated as a, a very, very positive prospect for, for mm. global equity markets. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. I mean, not so long ago, we were talking about how it was a blunt instrument, the idea of Fed reserves and reserve banks lifting rates that it in fact was causing so much pain on people in the economy. Yet you have top CEOs now saying that a soft landing is on track. So despite that blunt instrument, which has no doubt put a lot of pain on people. We're hearing some CEOs saying that Christmas is going to be a pretty difficult one this year. Um, you've been able to throw in, the world has been able to throw in two separate wars, one in Ukraine and another now in the Middle East as well. And yet we're still hearing that this soft landing is on track. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, really, um markets are built on on expectations and sometimes you know uh, some sort of fatal conceit where you know uh, everyone is unprepared for, for for some kind of more dire uh scenario because they you know see um things unfortunately and, and perhaps unwittingly as as a, a kind of a glass half full scenario uh, personally if i was to provide uh, my opinion I, I i do think that this whole notion of a soft landing is uh very unlikely and, and there's a, a good quote that's been floating around the markets recently is that um you know every um a hard landing sees a soft landing first. Uh, so there is this whole skepticism, at, at least amongst corners of the market, about how possible it is to see, um, you know, a, a, the avoidance of a, of a hard landing. But again, for now, if you just judge by the way that markets are behaving, soft landing seems to be the consensus view. Might be wrong, uh, but that's that's the way that uh, investors are behaving. All right, Kyle Rotto from Capital.com. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. CEOs say they're finding it difficult to sleep over the looming threat of cyber attacks on their businesses. The relentless surge in cyber attacks and data breaches has left corporate leaders tossing and turning in their beds, fearing the potential fallout from a catastrophic cyber assault. With cyber criminals becoming more sophisticated and audacious, the threat landscape has evolved into a perilous battleground. The consequences of such attacks are not limited to financial losses, but also extend to reputational damage and legal ramifications. Organizations in our prioritizing investments in robust security protocols, threat intelligence, as well as employee training to try and bolster their cyber resilience. There is a perception that Australia is not top of the pops when it comes to innovation, but in reality, it could be somewhat of a different story. To discuss this, we're joined by Professor Tim Harcourt from UTS, also host of The Great Transformation right here on Ticker. Great to see you, of course, Tim. Uh, Australia, uh, I guess a, a place, a great place for innovation and invention. Uh, what about commercialization as well? Yeah, well, thanks, Aaron. Yeah, in the uh, episode 14 of The Great Transformation, Larry Marshall, the former CEO is my guest and his view is Australia's are great uh, inventors all around the world in all sorts of different sectors. His view is that we don't quite take the next step to commercialization as well as well as he could and I think that's uh, sort of been his mission since he's you know retired from CSIRO and back to being a, an entrepreneur and inventor himself. Yes. Is it the fact that we have a small population, do you think? Or is it the fact that investors don't necessarily like to take risks? I was called up by someone last week saying, Aaron, I've got this great idea. You started a company. How do I find funding for it? And I said, get straight on a plane. Um, and that seems to be what a lot of the people that I speak to have to do time and time again, particularly after the pandemic. If it's not mining stocks or banking stocks or safe stocks, uh, there seems to be less of an appetite to take risk. Would you agree with that? <laughs> 
Yeah, there is a view that uh, you know the great investments in Australia have always been blue chips, particularly mining stocks and red bricks property. And so, uh, you know, sometimes entrepreneurial flair perhaps is not appreciated. I don't know whether it's size. I asked Larry this and we discussed the fact that Singapore and Israel are very small places. They have a great innovation culture. Some of the Scandinavian nations, you know, with, you know, obviously very good safety nets. So to, to take a risk, uh, you can in Scandinavia when you think of, um, you know, Spotify and all, the, all these companies that come out of that part of the world, that's uh, probably a, another good example. So you can do it as a, a small country. It depends on other institutions that you have and, uh, yeah, the will of investors and the will of uh, entrepreneurs. And talk to us about, I guess, the comparative advantage we have in mining and agriculture. Do you think that because they are so strong, it essentially means that investors are more likely to be drawn there for commercialization prospects as opposed to taking a risk? Frankly, do they need to take a risk when we have something that seems so secure, as you say, as mining and also property? Yeah, well, I remember when the head of Hewlett-Packard, Carly Faridi, told us uh, at the Sydney Olympics that we should get out of mining and farming and sell software like Taiwan does. And if we don't do that, the dollar will be 30 cents US uh, in, the, in 10 years' time. And, of course, we had the biggest terms of trade commodity boom in our history. So to some extent, that's true. But, of course, Aaron, a lot of innovation comes out of the mining sector. You know, I've met, uh, you know, Western Australian IT entrepreneurs in Siberia that have been selling IT, IT equipment and different uh, types of software to the to the exploration sector in, in Siberia. I've met uh, agricultural and agribusiness and, and wine entrepreneurs in Mendoza in, in Argentina. So to be an inventor, you don't just have to be a you know black skivvy in Paran having a cafe <laughs> latte. You can be in mining and farming and in a lab coat, you know, wherever. Mate, I've never been accused of being one of those people in Paran uh, with their black skivvy. Don't worry about that. Uh, however, um, they are often the people who do come up with some pretty good ideas. And there are a lot of companies that are based here in Melbourne and in Sydney, obviously, because we don't have the mining uh, phenomenon of the West or of Queensland to be able to, to get us by. And there are some wonderful stories. How do you think that Australia could celebrate them? Because no government seems to know really how to handle small business, let alone startups in Australia. Um, it seems to be that if it's not a, a business that is connected to the union movement, they're not really entirely sure what to do, right? I know your background uh, is in this. What's your perspective on that? Because countries like Australia and New Zealand have a real brain drain where great minds essentially say, this is a nice place to live from cradle to tomb. Uh, not much uh, excites us. Um, so I get on a plane and head to London or head to Silicon Valley. What do you think? Yeah, and apologise to any people from Paran out there. It's a lovely place and you can get a good coffee. Um, <laughs> They're not watching yeah, us anyway, don't worry. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because to some extent, well, one thing I liked about going from the AC2 to Austrade is that we had the Export of the Year Awards. And, uh, you know, even when I was at the AC2, I was a judge on the Export Awards and you met everyone from from uh, small-scale entrepreneurs in inner city Melbourne and and Sydney to the you know, to the mining plays and the agricultural plays. So I like the diversity of a lot of the talent that we have in uh, in Australia. Uh, Larry says something very interesting. He said that we produce great scientists and physicists. You know, we keep them in the university. We keep them doing research and getting ARC grants. But when he went to Silicon Valley as a PhD in physics, they said, you know, coming up with an idea in the lab is only one percent of uh, solving the problem. 
uh, you've got to take it. You've got to take it to market, and that's ninety nine percent of what you have to do for humanity. So his view was we we produce great scientists and great researchers, uh, but that's only one percent of of the deal. And so I think yeah. uh, he was trying to push more scientists to be entrepreneurial. Well, I think about Elon Musk. He was recently speaking and said, "Look, having the idea isn't the problem. Finding a way to commercialize it for me is." He says he has his fantastic idea of a vertical takeoff supersonic plane that we could all use. The only problem is is finding the time and the people to actually back it and fund it and to make it actually work. Anyway, we've got to leave it there. Always appreciate your time. Of course, a great transformation. 7.30 p.m. Tuesday here on Ticket and, of course, on demand with the fantastic, of course, Professor Tim Harcourt. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Aaron. And that is the program for now. Do hope to see you soon. You're watching Ticker. We'll have more in just a few minutes. 